Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. All right, Jake, it's Sunday. It's a sunny day outside. We're here podcasting. Dedicated. Yes, an unusual day. I feel like it feels like a not work day. <laughs> you look like you look a bit tired. You had a long week. Uh, just recovering from flu and now my kids have got it wife's got it so just tired but i'm fine very good yes. well it's sunday and tomorrow's monday so back in it back in it and School today starts tomorrow it does start tomorrow yes get them back School holidays <laughs> so we're here today with our good friend of the podcast dr puri marati affectionately known as ziggy we call him ziggy so i might actually slip up and call you that during the podcast but that that's in the now it's um, sunday night and you can do what you like <laughs> and um, you've been on the podcast a few times before, obviously very early on when we started the podcast and we we're talking about breast augmentation, you, you've been on and, and spoken about some of the legislative changes that have impacted our, our industry in uh, more recent episodes. Um, but today we're here to talk about a book that you've written called Normal. Um, Normal, a plastic surgeon's letter to his daughters about body image, which is quite interesting and I guess quite uh, interesting in the, in the timing itself with what's going on in the space. So we wanted to get you on to have a bit of a chat about it. I've had a read through the book. Jake hasn't yet. So I've had a real quick uh, flick through and also listened to another podcast that you did. So I've done a bit of homework. There you go. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, congratulations on the book and, and thanks for coming to join us on a Sunday. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. You know, you, you both are dressed the same with grey uh, gray hoodies. I feel like I'm a bit left out. <laughs> um, but no, thanks for having me. Um, the, yeah, the, what's today's the 8th of October. The official launch date is on Tuesday, the 10th of October, which also happens to be my birthday. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> it's taken yes, three, three, four years, I guess, to get to this stage. Right. Well, before we get into the meat of the book, well, I mean, what, you know, David's actually written a book. I, I'm the odd one out here. But what, what made you think, right, I'm going to write a book? Because it's, you know, you're a busy surgeon, you've got numerous other responsibilities and we should actually remind our listeners who may be new to the podcast your background first yeah good idea uh, well i'm a sydney-based plastic surgeon um my clinic is in surrey hills uh, which is pretty much in the middle of the city um i also work at prince of wales royal hospital for women and sydney children's campus as a visiting medical officer doing mainly microsurgical reconstruction for the breast and head and neck when i'm in the public sector but privately uh just all cosmetic rhinoplasties, breast augmentations, and body work. Um, now, the book, why it all came about, 2019, I've got three daughters, uh, Rosie, Evie, and Tessa. Rosie, my eldest daughter, was, for their school, had a different, um, had not a swimming carnival, but going to a swimming pool every day um, just to learn different things. And about this time of year, uh, and every day Rosie would turn up and every morning would wear a different um, swimsuit 
and not once care about what she looked like. Granted, she was in year two and much younger. So I had this moment in our kitchen looking at her thinking, well, how long will this innocence last? Uh, in a few years, she might really worry about what she looks like. And what is my role in all this as a, both a father of three daughters, but and also well, a plastic surgeon who does operate and you know has a career um, dealing with patients with different sort of body images, um, hence needing either reconstructive or cosmetic enha- enhancement or work. So that was 2019, um, uh, and then that Christmas we went to the UK. My wife's from England and you know, had a lot of time on the aeroplane to think about it. And then it wasn't until January 2020, uh, Kobe Bryant passed. Him and he had four daughters himself, and in one of his, him and one of his daughters were in a horrific helicopter accident. And Kobe was very much into mamba mentality. You know, you just work hard, no excuses. You got to do it. So I was like, okay, well, I'm starting to think maybe I need to do this. And then March 2020 was all the lockdown thing due to the pandemic so then i had a bit of time i had six to eight weeks off so i started scribing what what i wanted to write and it's gone through different variations and uh, initially i thought about a mini textbook and then i thought about uh you know other aspects but it's worked out that it's about you know body development and body image um and how things develop yeah you know whether it's breast nose gynecological areas uh, and i do talk about uh, other things social media talk about eating disorders as well so i figured that was all uh, that would all encompass it because the book is you know it's made for tweens and parents of tweens yeah so it took me all that time and uh, finally found uh just through serendipity you know i was playing golf with this guy and he was writing a book so he introduced me to a lady called jackie lane who lives three blocks from my house um, and she helps people, you know, authors, amateur authors, get their book out there. Uh, she helped me, you know, find a publishing house. And here we are talking to you guys well. That's amazing. Uh, it's so weird that you sort of painted that swimming picture. I took my daughter today and I actually had exactly the same thing. She's wearing this sort of, you know, flowery thing. She looks really cute. She's only six. But sort of looking at her thinking, I wonder when she's going to think that's a bit not for her, you know, because, mm, you know, not cool. yeah, exactly. There'll be at some point where it'll probably be one of her school friends or, or probably one of her peers will influence her rather than, you know, her mum or dad saying you shouldn't wear that. Or maybe you're a bit too old or young for that, whatever. But yeah, they're, they're very innocent. And I, I go through the same things. I go to work and I work on faces and Ziggy, you do bodies. Yeah. And I have that same thing. I wonder what I will do one day when she says, oh, daddy, uh, are my lips good enough or, you know, or whatever, you know, yeah. I just, I don't know what I'll do with that. I just, you know, and it will probably happen earlier than, than I hope. So it's, no, it's a good question. point. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happened to me. What happened to you? I just, I'm looking at her and going, huh, this is kind of an interesting moment. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what is my, what is my role? So I think as the book now is, you know, printed and people are looking at it and the anxiety uh, and stress I have about it, I can kind of go back to the, the it's not a book about, and there's no self-promotion of me in there. It's not one of those classic, plastic surgeon writes about a book just to help him or her, you know, sell, make more money. Um, it's, it's actually helped me, Jake, not, not too dissimilar to what you're going through. The process of writing a book 
has actually helped me understand how I'm going to have to deal with it all um, and how I'll cope and this coping mechanisms that hopefully I'll have. So, uh, yeah. If, yeah, I'll ask if you did it. I'm not from it. <laughs> yeah. So it's really funny. She, she lost her front tooth the other day, like a, you know, yeah. an obvious tooth. And she was excited because she knew the tooth fairy was going to come. And we, we've done all <laughs> yeah. of that with a few other teeth. But this time she had a bit of a wobble where she, she sort of went to mommy and had a cut and she said, am I ugly? Cause you yeah, know, smiles, it's pretty obvious. And obviously we, we managed to sort of make her realize it's just normal and new tooth is oh. already growing, et cetera. But she's already saying words like, am I ugly? And, and things like that. It's, it's so bizarre. I don't know where these things come from in, in such young children. So how old was your daughter yeah. when, when you were thinking about all this? Well, she was in year two. So year one and year two. So 2019, she was born in 2012. Seven. So, yeah, yeah, she was seven. And seven, she's just 11. So that's what three, four years ago now. So has yeah. she started asking, you know, any questions that are, are a little bit more tricky? Uh, not yet, not yet. But you, you know, she's in year five, and then my second in year four. So they do have some a lot of giggling because they're doing uh, body development and uh, physical ed now at school. Um, but that's okay. They're curious and they they they, they think of it in different ways. And what you, what the the reason I end up calling the book normal. It's because I had patients say to me, thank you for making me feel normal. Um, and normal is so different for so many different people. So you talk about the tooth analogy. If your child had really bad teeth, you wouldn't hesitate at all to send them to an orthodontist or a dentist to fix someone's teeth. Yep. And a lot of the developmental problems for breasts, uh, nothing you could, you know, I talk about tuberous breasts or 12-year-olds with H-cup um, breasts that need breast reductions. Now, I've had so many patients, parents come in and they're like, oh, my GP said, wait until you're 18. But a lot of things, you just can't wait until you're 18. If you've got, you know, got patients at an A cup one size, a double D cup the other side, you expect a, a teenage girl to go through all the swimming carnivals, all the play dates with people's friends, not feeling normal. So, that's what I talk about a lot in the book is, you know, what is normal and what is normal for that particular patient and what can be done to try to help them get to their version of normal. Yeah. And so you have this epiphany, you decide that you, you want to write the book. I'm assuming there are a lot of sort of moments of, of self-reflection and looking at your own career. So how, how has this, this book and this process affected the way that you parent? the way that you conduct yourself as a surgeon, maybe it hasn't changed at all, but I'm, I'm curious if it has, and, and if so, how? Oh, I think, I think I'm a bit more self-reflective on what I say around the, the girls um, a lot, and also they, they know what I do. Um, so I, I have to also be very mindful and conscious that the, the content that I put out on social media isn't objectifying, isn't, you know, I try to keep it to my core values. It's all very educational. Um, so I think that has changed. I, I never had, the, you know, never really posted gratuitous bikini photos in the past, but definitely now even less reason to do it because there is that sense of, you know, yeah, role modeling for your, for your daughters as well. You can't tell them one thing at home and then at work do exactly the opposite. So, um, it has also solidified that aspect of it for me. Um, but from a parenting point of view, look, I don't think we're, we're all trying to figure out how to parent. So I'm, I'm not, no expert on parenting, 
Um, but it's got me thinking of, you know, talking to them more about things, whereas previously I may not have. Can I ask you, Ziggy, um, I know that your daughters know what you do, but yeah. how do you explain it to them? Because, of course, it's it's easy to say, oh, I, I chop out cancers and I, I yeah. heal people or save people. That's I think a child could understand that. But when you say, oh, well, I'm just, you know, improving what someone has, because sort of by showcasing that maybe you're encouraging that i, d I don't know H how do you d have that discussion with children look i think from a very young age now it's been strange that you know if i've had breast implants in my work bag they get them and they know exactly where to put them you know they they put it in their shirts and even today I, I took two of the daughters to play tennis um and one of them tucked her t-shirt in and then shoved all the tennis balls down the top and pretended she had breasts so I think it's, I mean, boys and girls, they experiment and it's a way of them to, to learn as well. Um, but, you know, they, they know that I, I do this and some patients don't do it just for cancer reasons. They do it for cosmetic reasons. And the question, the million dollar question will be, what will I do when they come and ask for that sort of uh, work? And the only thing I can think of is it's hard for me to put myself in that position. But obviously they have to be over 18, you know. Um, but also they have to take agency of their body and take agency of their decision process. So I had a patient the other day who's just about 17 and uh, needed a labiaplasty. Now, that's very rare at that age, but she had very uneven um, labia minoras. One was six, seven centimetres, one was, you know, one centimetre, and it was affecting the ability for her to drill, wear swimmers, wear gym clothes. But what impressed me most about her, she was so well researched into this, more so than any of my quote unquote adult patients. Um, her parents were involved, psychologists were involved. So, that, you know, she had made a decision that she was going to go down that path and she was very well educated on. So, I think when my daughters are in that situation, you know, I'm going to encourage them to educate themselves about, you yeah. know, the pros and cons of everything they do. Yeah. Now, there's there's been plastic surgeons in Sydney that have done their own daughter's breast augmentation, um, which is, that's not something that's ever going to happen, but the, you know, you don't want to go down that path for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of your daughters, very early on in the book, um, you pen a letter to your daughter, to your girls. Um, yeah. and I was going to read it. Do you mind if I read it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay with that, Joe? Of course. All right. Like so, yeah, so this is not. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was that kind of podcast. All right. So, um, you can do my audio book. Uh, yeah. I can, I can, uh, we'll see. If you like this, I'm available for hire. So, let's see how we, let's see how we go. Dear girls, yeah. I love being your father. After the three of you were born, people would ask me if I would try again for a boy. I always told them if we have a fourth, I want another girl. I love that you are affectionate, caring, determined, and kind. I wanted to write this book before you reach puberty to let you know that beauty and power are about confidence. They're about being comfortable in your own skin. Confidence is beautiful was the mantra I chose for my practice when it first opened years ago. I like to think that I help people feel more confident for a living. Here are some things I want you to remember on your journey to adulthood. My job as a father is to make you self-sufficient members of society. I will know I've been successful if I am rendered obsolete in this role. My goal is to establish a code of conduct to help you become independent women. No one is perfect and there are things you can't control. You can't control who your parents are, where you are from, your race, your height or your skin colour. Don't focus on things you can't control. 
I never want you to be ashamed of your body or any part of it. But if you are insecure about a particular physical trait, there is a ladder of small steps you can take. Start with the lowest rung and work your way up the ladder if you feel you still need to. This could be as simple as owning your decision to accept yourself as you are, or maybe the first step is a diet, exercise and lifestyle changes. Surgery should always be the last option for change, but sometimes it is the only option as in developmental conditions. Like you, your mum was one of three sisters and she tells me I don't understand how difficult it is to be a teenage girl. I agree. The challenges and stresses for teenage girls are far greater than those of boys. For one, your bodies change monthly and cyclically. I have countless patients who tell me that their breast sizes fluctuates throughout their cycle, sometimes up to half a bra cup. Another factor conspiring against teenage girls is that many of your role models have had surgical enhancements. Believe me, I know this, is, I know this to be the case, and the status is based on physical appearance. Male role models, on the other hand, are often athletes who are judged more on their sporting prowess than their looks. This is a generalization, of course, and role modeling is changing with greater coverage of female athletes and businesswomen. So choose your role models wisely. I want your journey to adulthood to be a smooth one, but I know that you will have challenges in your life. Overcoming one obstacle, being it physical or emotional, doesn't mean you won't have others. It's like climbing a mountain. Scaling one peak simply means you're worthy of climbing another and then another. Succeeding at climbing one mountain doesn't take you to a mystical valley of no challenges, but rather towards other summits to conquer. Everyone fails multiple times, but you are only a loser if you blame others and accept none of the responsibility. Being a winner is not about getting a prize or a medal. It's about evolving, learning, not giving up and having a purpose in life. Remember, it's hard to beat someone who never gives up. Whatever problem you are facing, whether it's body image, personal or academic, and no matter how difficult it seems at the time, it is not a unique misfortune selected especially for you. There are no conspiracies out to get you and no one cares for your excuses. Never blame your problems on being a girl, not being smart enough or looking a certain way. Adopt a growth mindset that you are not limited by your gender, ethnicity or physical status. I asked your grand grandmother, Zozo, what her goals were for me and my brother growing up. She said, what all parents really want for their children is that they are happy. This couldn't be more true because with happiness comes confidence and confidence is beautiful with love, Dad. Very nice. Very nice. What I like that. That's the first time well, I've heard that, yeah. Look, as a dad, I couldn't agree more and it kind of makes you a bit emotional in a way because... I got a bit emotional. I haven't, I haven't, I've read it so many times to myself. I actually haven't heard it that way. So well, well read. You might get yeah. that job. In, yeah, I was going to say, audio. does he get the job? <laughs> don't, want, don't want a British accent? <laughs> now, um, joking aside, yeah, I, I mean, I, I couldn't have put it better. Yeah. And it's true. And we were talking yeah. off air before. We, it's very difficult for me to explain. There's a fine line between body dysmorphia and, you know, one of my normal patients, inverted commas, coming to my yeah. rooms and saying, I would like to improve something. Now, I know that body dysmorphia has categories and classifications and mm. we screen for it and, you know, it should be fairly explicit what it is, but there is a bit of a tightrope between mm. what we're doing every day for normal people and then yep. those people who we say no to, I think you need something else. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I always say to my patients, you know, my job here is almost to 
tweak and improve, but obviously I want you to still look anatomically normal. So you can forget about looking in the mirror and, and focusing on that, you know, stagginess or deflation or that wrinkle. So you can get on with your life and, and be more confident. Mm. Um, so I like to feel like I'm doing that in a natural, normal, structured, um, understandable way. But it, it, it's a difficult one. There, there seems to be an ethical dilemma there. I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Can, do you know what I mean, Ziggy? Because you're a surgeon. No, no. What you yeah, are no, absolutely. Is, is I, even and, bigger. Yeah, 100%. But I think what um, the fact that you've been thinking about it, I think back to your question about to me before, the, the fact that you're thinking about it will automatically affect how you practice medicine because it's, you know, if a 16-year-old girl comes in and wants liposuction, big lips, and you never, of course you're never going to do that. But, you know, the 21, 22-year-old who's also, you know, hasn't researched, hasn't done it as much, and you put yourself in their positions, if that was my daughter, what would I, what would I advise them? And one of the problems in our industry, in medicine, is that doctors, surgeons are paid to operate. We're not paid not to operate. So I, I, there's a lot of patients I say to them, look, I only get paid if I operate on you. I'm telling you, you shouldn't have an operation. You know, I'm incentivized to operate on you, you know, yeah. and I'm telling you not to have an operation. So hopefully you understand how uh, the operation operating is not the right thing for you at this stage of your life. And a lot of patients take that on board. Having written the book, and I think you'll, you're probably going through, my kid's just that three or four years older than yours, but you when they start getting to my age, I think you'll probably end up changing your practice a little bit as well, uh, just as I have done because I'm you know, a little bit more conservative, especially to those younger patients. Well, I mean, I already have a practice where I rarely see younger patients. And in fact, weirdly, yeah. this morning I had an email from a, a girl who, quite short, she said, I'm 17 and I've got my parental consent and my parents are happy to come with me for a liquid nose job. Will you do it? And I haven't even replied yet, but the answer will be no. Yeah. Even if she was, I don't know, 20, I, 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 this is very arbitrary and I don't ever yeah. want anyone to be judged before I've even met them. But I do have a bit of a mental barrier that it has to be early 20s. I don't stick to 18. I know legally they can sort of mm. be treated, yeah. but I just... In my experience, I don't think most 18-year-olds are mature enough to be able to really understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. And again, you can have very mature, well-considered people and you can have well, immature 25-year-olds. You, yeah. you look at the bell curve, so you, there's going to be outliers in every scenario mm. in life. So you're going to yeah. have people that are extremely mature and well-researched and level-headed at that age. Yeah. But if you look at the average person in that in that age category, they've probably still got some development and some yeah yeah some life experience to gain. Well, what do you think about oh, well, the, the, oh, well, the? I think I think I've been thinking about that one that you had because, and I talk about it in the book, and we talk about it a lot in plastic surgery. We talk about the reconstructive ladder, where you start at the lowest rung and work up, and sometimes it's the reconstructive elevator. You just get off at the right level. You know, if you've got a cleft lip and palate. You're not going to try all the non non surgicals. You're going to go straight to surgery. But I think in that particular patient, um, she's headed towards a rhinoplasty at some stage in her life. So in a way, she's trying to temporise that decision for a rhinoplasty, which is very permanent, by using uh, you know non. Uh, I think yeah. So she's well researched. Parents involved psychologists. 
um, that may not be the worst thing. It, it avoids her having a certain operation. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm judging from Same. the yeah. paragraph for someone who I've never met. I don't know yeah. what this looks like. I don't know if there's a functional issue. I don't know anything. Yeah. But my brain is saying, mm, I'm just getting a vibe. It, it's even how she wrote it. Yeah, she, yeah. she said, hey, that's how she started it. Yeah, Happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I want a liquid nose job and my parents will give me consent. Will you do it? That, that, that's yeah. true what she yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. So it was how she even said it that made me think, well, if you had the parents' consent, wouldn't they maybe write to me? Yeah. No, maybe yeah, I'm and I had overjudging But this. that patient that I said, my, that 17-year-old that I had was the exact opposite of a hey. She was very well researched, very like eloquent. She, it was, she was, I was more, more impressed with her than any other of my adult patients so far this year. <laughs> but, but, but I feel like something like that, where there's a functional as well as cosmetic component. She was functional. It was functional. It wasn't a cosmetic I, operation. I mean, let's think about something that is purely cosmetic, but is probably considered fairly um, par for the course. It's something like an otoplasty for you yeah. know, a kid who's got big sticky out ears. That, as I understand, is actually encouraged by Medicare. You can, you can get that on Medicare, correct? Yeah, I do, do talk about um, otoplasties in the book. So it's an interesting one with otoplasty. There's no functional component. No. So there's a Medicare item number for it. So that means uh, it can be done at some public hospitals and insurance can cover it, but only until the child is 16. So you, as soon as they're 17, 18 and above, if you want an otoplasty, it becomes purely cosmetic and insurance won't cover it. Yeah. Right? So... Um, in a way, it's incentivized to get done earlier. Yeah. Um, so it's the same operation, but done at 16, it's deemed reconstructive, and 17, it's deemed cosmetic. So a lot of time patients, well, parents come to me and they're like, oh, you know, the kid hasn't started school. And what we say to parents is this, this kind of three age groups that you, that you do for otoplasty, um, one is when they're super young and they don't know either way. So, you know, that three, four age group. The next is when they start, and that's before school, so they never have to go through that process. And kids with, you know, uh, uh, prominent ears, the boys always have long hair and the girls never pull their hair up. They, they, they just come in and, and, you know, 10, 10, 11 year old boys always have long hair because they're trying to cover their ears. And as I said, the girls never pull their hair up. So you either do it before they get to school or when they notice that something is not normal, you know, and then they start not getting, maybe getting teased, but noticing that they're changing their behavior. And that can happen at that, you know, eight to 12 age group. And then there's that just before 16 age group where they're very well researched. They've just, you know what, I want it now. I've, I've dealt with this my whole life. Yeah. So there, uh, there's those. Are, but then once you hit 17, it's cosmetic, not covered by Medicare. It's interesting. I, I, I mean, I've got nothing against it. I just wonder who sort of set that bar, who, who decided that. But, you know, if, if you've got a, a woman with, you know, skin hanging from multiple pregnancies, separation, and, mm. you know, some of that is deemed cosmetic. I know some of it's functional, some of it's cosmetic, yeah. but that, that wouldn't be covered. And yet, you know, most women, not most women, many women are not happy with their bodies after, and they've got zero control over it. And yet they yeah. can't get that covered. So it just seems arbitrary. I don't know. Mm. Odd, isn't it? Well, it's a quirk of the Medicare system. Um, you know, so 
Medicare number for, say, tuberous breasts, which is, you know, uneven breast development, there's a Medicare number involved from at any age for that to be used. Large breasts, you know, we've got one of, the, one of, our, one of my patients, uh, gigantomastia, so just big breasts at a young age. She's had a breast reduction. And we interview her for, for the book, and then she messaged me quite recently, and now she's in, um, got into medicine. So she's going to be a doctor herself. So um, that was kind of sweet. And that, that has an item number as well. Um, but it is very arbitrary. So labiaplasty, there used to be an item number for labiaplasty, but now they've put a you know, descriptor on it that the labia has to protrude, protrude more than eight centimetres, which right. I don't think anyone's ever seen any. So you talk about arbitrary decisions, that's an arbitrary decision to say something eight centimetres, which very rarely is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Six is fine, but eight, got to do it. It's, yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, the book itself is quite interesting because you start off, starts off, you know, with this letter to, to your daughter and it's very philosophical. And, and then he sort of goes into a very detailed description of different cosmetic, basically, I, I, I don't think I noticed one that was omitted from here. I think it was pretty comprehensive in terms of all the aesthetic procedures. And then there's a lot of quotes in the book. You've got obviously stories from, from patients and quotes. Um, you talk about a friend of yours, Lucy. Um, yeah. Your own life that was one of your, your best friends at high school. Um, and then you've got a lot of advice for parents as well. So I'm just curious, like, how did you sort of come up with the structure? What was the thought process behind the structure of, of the book? And then we'll get into some of those details as we, as we progress. Oh, I think this thought process initially was maybe doing a little mini uh, textbook for of plastic surgery for people, but I thought that, I mean, that didn't happen. So kind of, it was exactly that, you know, for the tweens or the parents of tweens where they might only open up that one chapter of breast breast development and go, okay, I, I, I need to find out about, you know, breast reduction, how it's done, or it could be somebody with, you know, prominent ears. And so I figured the way I'd do it, or, you know, someone with an eating disorder, they read it, they find out the different types of eating disorder. And then at the end of the chapter, there was like Australia-based, you know, health groups that can help um, for them. So it's a way of trying to, you know, give people the tools to go and get help if they need it. Um, so that's how it all, yeah, how it all kind of morphed. And I had a, a lady uh, who's a friend of a friend, you know, who's written lots of books herself, and she kind of helped me as well because I'd kind of, I'd want to do one thing. She goes, no, it'd be better to do this thing. And she'd interview the patients and uh, find the quotes and then set it up that way for me. So that I got a lot of help in terms of where, how the chapters would evolve. Yeah. I got a question about, I don't know how to sort of phrase this question because presumably as a surgeon, you, you never offer something that would be completely outside the, 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 the boundaries of what most people would deem normal. So you wouldn't go from mm. say an A cup to, you know, double G. You, you probably wouldn't do that. So I'm sure, I, I'm sure you wouldn't because I've seen your work, mm. but how do you decide what is acceptable to offer or not to offer? Like, how do you, how do you make that decision uh, as a surgeon? Because you, you know what you offer is, again, it, it's it's a bigger stakes than what I do. I can dissolve, or my my results will go away after a few months if it's a toxin. I sort of feel like I've I've got a little bit of leeway there because even if it doesn't quite work out, I can I can remove it or backtrack. Whereas you sort of can't. Um, but presumably, you say no to people sometimes. Yeah, no, there's a lot of no's. Um, well. 
the, so what happens is most patients email photos beforehand and my staff and I um, triage them that way as well. So if they you know, haven't hit their goal weight and they're, you know, on a tummy tuck and they're still breastfeeding, they can't have a breast augmentation. So fortunately over the years, the patients that come in have been screened, so that helps. And patients are so well-educated now so that I don't have to spend half the consultation telling them about why you can do this and why you can't do it. But what we what you can't get on photos is their the mindset. So I had a patient the other week who was just too immature. Like I think she was 24, 25, but just was not listening. And it was like, no, this is not happening. You know, we're not doing this operation. Another one just last week didn't had tuberous breasts, didn't want scars. And she started arguing with me. I'm like, why are we arguing? And you're not getting an operation. You need a proper operation. And any patient that comes in and, and I don't end up offering them surgery, I don't even charge them for the consultation. You know, the question is that those last two patients are like, you know what, I'm not operating on you uh, because you're not listening to the operation that you need. So no hard feelings. You don't have to pay for the consultation. Um, good luck on your journey. But I think you, um, there's totally unrealistic patients. They're just so easy to pick that they don't get to the breeding process. And then when they do get to you, once you tell them why they can't do something, the majority listen and the ones that don't are the ones who just go, sorry, here's your, here's your money back for the consultation. Sadly, like I had a patient who uh, needed a particular operation, didn't want it, then went to Turkey and she's come back and my goodness. Thailand, I think Thailand is different because Thailand, the Thai surgeons are polite and respectful. I think the, the Turkey what she was telling me is how aggressive they were towards her and how cheap everything was so they just kept adding on things so now she regrets it she goes yeah no you told me not to do it now i've gone to turkey what can you do i'm like it's unfixable i'm sorry it's just unfixable so someone will always find a patient will always find someone to do the operation uh, whether in this country or in another yeah i mean what can you i'm sure this is the same in surgery but maybe it's not um I find often when patients come, the first time we do something, it could be something pretty simple. They, they probably get this huge dopamine hit where they're mm. so happy, so confident, you've done you know, what they wanted. But then they, they potentially come back again, again, and then it almost becomes a point where you're actually saying no for everything because they, they sort of, they want that dopamine hit again. But yeah, they sort of almost get addicted to that feeling. Do do you have that with surgery, or is it just a phenomenon with um, injectables? Well, yeah, I think we've got it with breast size. So I said to patients, um, uh, it's like a neuroplasticity of the brain, right? You you get a new perfume or a cologne, you put one spray on, you love the smell the first time you smell it. Then after a month, you go, I think I need two, and then so every he can smell you, but you need to keep putting it on to get that smell taste when your brain's used to it. So lips are very similar. You put point half a mil in, they, they love it, but then they get used to it. So then the next time they've got to put more in to get that dopamine hit, as you said. So for us, it's breast, breast uh, size of patients, when they wake up, love the volume. It's nice and high. But in that first six to eight weeks, they do lose about 20% of that volume. And the first thing, the, the regret the patients always had is, I wish I went bigger. I loved that first time, the, you know, the first morning, how full they were. Um, 
but they lose a bit of volume and then that neuroplasticity, they need that hit to get to that bigger hit size. So I talk about that all the time with patients yeah. um, using that perfume analogy. For us, it's kind of easy. It's more for the injectors like yourself, Jake, that could get sucked into just putting more and more filler in. Um, and yet again, back to what I said, as doctors, we're incentivized to do procedures. So the more you put in, the more you potentially can make money. So yeah, yeah, you do have to, you know, be, be reluctant sometimes to, to, to push it. it. It's yeah. Um, you sort of touched on an interesting point with the, the breast size and people continually wanting to go bigger or having that regret once the swelling's gone down and they got used to something that's no longer there. Um, but when you look at plastic surgery in terms of what it was originally designed to do, I mean, you you quoted the the godfather or the grandfather of plastic surgery, and I'm gonna I'm gonna Gilly. butcher his name. Uh, Gaspare Taglacozzi? Oh, yeah, Taglacozzi. Yeah, he's Italian, Taglacozzi. yeah. So, yeah, and basically his quote says, we repair uh, we repair and restore that which nature has given, but fortune has taken away, not that it pleased the eye of the beholder, but so it buoys the spirit of the afflicted. So, I mean, basically what you're saying is you're correcting something that's been damaged through trauma or some sort of, you know, maybe some congenital um, issue they were born with. But when you've got that 20-year-old patient that comes in or 25-year-old patient that comes in that has small breasts, but there's nothing wrong with them, they're completely normal, there's nothing abnormal about them, but they just want them bigger because they feel that's what society is going to reward them for. They're going to get more attention from men or whatever it may be. So how do you sort of reconcile that when, when you look at plastic surgery in, in terms of the aesthetic side, which is sort of like an offshoot of you know reconstructive or surgery that's done for trauma region, reasons. How do you reconcile that and, and what is normal? Well, I think, um, well, plastic surgery is a big specialty. You've got burns, clefts, craniofacial, and cosmetic is one of the arms of it. Um, and you're using, I think, reconstructive breast reconstruction. It also has a lot of cosmetic aspects to it as well. Um, regarding the patients, I guess, if a male patient wanted to do something, no one really double guesses them and asks them why, because men have always controlled our agency, you know. But for women, every woman I've operated on has done it, done, done it for themselves. They've never said they've done it for their partner, never said it for anyone else. So a lot of them just do it for themselves because I think now modern women are doing things for themselves, although they're not, not unashamedly proud to do something for themselves. Now, a 20-year-old is never going to get, you know, massive 500cc implants. I never put high-profile implants in on first for first patients anyway. It's just my, the practice that I have. I always go for the low low profile and the moderate profile. But the patients self-select the surgeons they know that will do the things they want them to do. So, they will go, if you want that big fake round look, they find the surgeon who offers that big fake round look. If you want more of that discussion or more natural look, they'll find that surgeon that offers that. Yep. So I think the patients self-select themselves as well. So I don't see as many of the quote-unquote body dysmorphics because I, I think they select me out differently. Yeah. But like what, what's, what's your sort of limitation? Like where, where's that line for you? How do you determine where that line is? Is it, you know, someone that wants to do something that's anatomically disproportionate? Is it the mindset? Is it the age? Is it all those factors? Because it's very, as Jake sort of alluded to at the beginning of the chat, it's very subjective. What's normal to me might be different to what someone else perceives as normal. You know, people like us that in the industry, 
things become normalized. You get this thing called perception, perception drift. So we, how do you sort of work out what's what's acceptable and what's not? But that's and I don't know if you've got an answer. I mean, it's I mean, I have. I, I certainly don't say, have an answer. But, yeah. but I think patients come in, and that's why I get patients to bring in photos of what they want to look like. Yeah. Because a patient says, "I want a natural result," and they show me the the nose or the breast they want. I'm like, that is not a natural. So your version of natural is not the same as my version. So part of the consent process is seeing the results that they like and going, okay, this is the sort of look you're after, whether it's possible or not. So the, the classic thing is rhinoplasty patients that have thick noses, thick skin, big, thick uh, ethnic noses, the one that really small, filtered uh, Instagram nose. So, uh, mate, it's, I see two or three of them a week where you go, you are not going to get that cute button Kim Kardashian nose. You're just not going to get it because you've got thick skin and here's the reason. The breast analogy would be a woman that has double D cup breasts with lots of stretch marks and loose skin and shows me a photo of an Instagram model that has that round, crisp cleavage. You tell them you know you're never going to look like that. It's impossible for you to look like that. These are the looks that you're most likely going to get. Now, of course, you could push to get those, but that's when you get into trouble. That's where you go to Turkey and they make try to make you that really, really small upturned nose that is non-functional. You can't breathe out of it, and it's got lots of contour issues. You go and put on big, massive, round implant on someone that's already got heavy breasts. And they sag and then they need another lift and they, they don't look good. So it's in the surgeon's best interest not to offer bad operations because they, they, be, they become a liability for you. They're, they're constantly going to be unhappy. But if you tell them that you're just not going to get that result. Now, if a 20-year-old came in and wanted something unrealistic, of course, you wouldn't do it. But if they're well-researched and, under, and, and understand what they're talking about, then, then that's their decision. It's not for me to decide. Do you have any thoughts on that, Joe? It's so <laughs> difficult. I mean, I'm in the game of doing not necessarily subtle work. You know, sometimes use a lot of product, but the, the person ends up looking good, natural, and no one would know. So it's not even a case of a little bit. It's mm. more just, I don't know, respecting the anatomy. And, and like Ziggy said, it's a real art to, to get into someone's mindset and understand what they're thinking before you go ahead and deliver a treatment. Because if you're not aligned, even if it looks good, they won't be happy. Mm, that doesn't um, work. So, I don't know. I, I, I always fall back to my clinical photography. I really sort of lean on that to, to try and plan and get, not just understand what I want to do, but get them to understand their face. Mm. And I'm sure Ziggy does it, understand their body. Um, and if I just smell that something's not quite aligning or, or we're not quite on the same page i just really back off and i'll do something super simple if nothing at all but um yeah it's this normal word mm. you, it, it's, yeah. it's so difficult it's good to find out what what their normal is so that's why i get them to bring photos in of what what they want to achieve because historically when patients came in they had they trusted their doctor surgeon to do the right thing for them but communicate and then it's hard to communicate you know if you don't have photos in a historic way you know 10 20 15 years ago you went into your surgeon he or she just said okay you're getting this and the patient had no no power in the decision process now 
it's very much a an equal decision. I tell them this is the implants you can get. You go do some more research on those, and then we'll we'll commit we'll commit to it. But every patient has brings in photos of their of what they want because that to me that's the most important because that gets me to understand where where their normal is. Yeah, if their normal is not something I can get to. Then you go, you're just not going to look like that. So all of it, my unhappy patients are the ones that didn't get the result. Not necessarily have a bad outcome, just didn't get the result that they wanted. Mm. So it really reminds me, I think episode three we did with Dr. Shahidi. Yeah. This is, you know, 2019, yeah. so <laughs> several years ago. And he he de- he said he did have some software in his rooms where sometimes you model what, what it might look like, but he didn't like mm. it because didn't feel it was accurate and, and sometimes it sets a a wrong expectation. Do you think that the technology has moved on or have you tried? Do you think oh, I mean, great, great point. I mean, the, the patient that I was just referring to you before, it's a thick skin. She'd seen the Dr. Shahidi before me as well. And he had told her exactly what I had told her, which is, you're not going to get that result. So she, you know, I said, look, if Dr. Shahidi and myself have said the same thing, I would really listen to us because we do a lot of rhinoplasties between us. Yeah. Um, you don't want to go to someone that says, yes, you can get that result, but trust me, we, you won't. Now, with the 3D technology, uh, I've got this thing called the 3D Vectra, which is great, and I say to patients, it's a communication tool. It's like a 3D photo, and we morph what the results are. But particularly with these thick-skinned uh, rhinoplasty patients, I'm reluctant to use it because the morphing image makes it look really cute and because you could dial it make it really thin, make it really big and small. You can create this big hump. And I, if I do use it, like I document with them, and I said, I've, I've used Vectra, but told them they will not get that result because, uh, and I used to let people um, take photos of the Vectra, but I do it less and less now because they think that's what they're going to look like and they never do, and it, it can be a source of disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the topics that you talk about, well, say at length, but it's a, you know, it's, you got dedicated almost a, a chapter to it. it was like this de- de- de BDD depression and, and you spoke about your friend Lucy. And so um, she took a life in high school and obviously tragic and horrible. And we hear about this stuff a lot. I mean, the suicide rate amongst young people, particularly men, actually, I think is actually men got the highest, young men have got the highest rates of suicide. But wh- why do you think we've got so many unhappy pe- young people these days. I mean, as a father and a surgeon, what, what do you, what do you think the answer is? Oh, that, that I can't answer. I'm definitely not in the, in the, in the field. Um, but, uh, I think it's always been there. Um, but I yeah. think now pe- people have, I think they're better at talking about it. So I think the thing with Lucy was, I didn't even know what depression was when I was in high school. Didn't even know that, you know, she, uh, what she did and what she went through, I thought it was like a sprained ankle. You, you try to, you know, you harm yourself and then you get over it. Yeah. But I think nowadays we have more avenues. There are all those self-help um, links that I have at the end of the chapter that weren't there before. So I think nowadays it, the number higher, I couldn't say, but I'd like to think that we're more aware of it and we talk about it more. You know, my, my sister-in-law works for Are You Okay?, um, and they're fantastic at spreading spreading the word. Beyond Blue is fantastic. So I think, and, you know, in the news, whenever they uh, show a harrowing thing, they always say, look, if this has um, bothered you, here are the, you know, here are the helplines you can go on. So for me, 
which I didn't have and which I will learn from is just that the talking aspect of it. I think talking to people and talking to anybody yeah. can be very therapeutic. Do you, do you think there's any truth in, in the fact that, you know, social media, you know, how we've got access to celebrities now who a lot of them, you know, even in the letter you wrote to your daughter, you said a lot of these people go and get plastic surgery. They've got enhancements. They're on the front cover of magazines. They're all, all over social media. A lot of them have had procedures with people like yourself. Yeah. They've got this perfection type of look about them. And that's in everyone's fun. I mean, you've got kids now who will, you know, can barely walk that have got a mobile device in their hand. I mean, do, do you think that that's, that's a role, or playing a role in all this kind of stuff? Oh, I think the, the, I mean, the social media, dysphor- uh, Snapchat dysphoria is definitely a thing. Yeah. Um, but it's here to stay. Social yeah. media is here to stay. I mean, people die of car crashes, but we still drive our cars. So it's all, all of us um, sensible, sensible usage of it. But one of the things with all the filtering is, say when I started practice 12 years ago, there was one cosmetic magazine and everyone advertised in that cosmetic magazine. Um, and if there's any photos, the, they'd Photoshop them and no one would ever know, you know, <laughs> of a face or whatever. But now because kids and uh, com- the, so the, the, the community has access to all the morphing technologies and that, and everyone takes a photo and plays around with their nose and does something with their skin, people are aware that you could do it yourself. So when someone else posts on it, I think everybody knows that they're morphed. And one of the good things that the medical guidelines have brought in is at first I was a little bit I was a bit annoyed by it, but now I see why they've done it. Is we can't reshare patients' photos that they send us. Previously we could, but now we can't. Um, and one of the benefits of it is because patients probably morph and uh, more morph and use filters to change the results when they send them into you or when they post on social media, and then you're reposting that content. It, unaware that they've made those changes. Um, yeah. So now, like, we have to only use our own photos, don't use any, you know, morphing technology, of course. But I think patients, I think we, we need to give them a bit more credit. They, they know that when they follow a certain uh, celebrity and the, the, their photos are just perfect and their nose are just perfect, I think they know that it's been morphed and yeah. uh, enhanced. Honestly, because they do it themselves. Yeah. I look at the, the BBL phenomenon after... Kim Kardashian and just seen, you know, that's become almost like a, I'm not here to judge whether it's good or whether it's bad, but I think we could fairly say it's a bit of an epidemic. Like it's pretty widespread. here in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they do have influence over people. Um, Oh, definitely. I think it's influence and trends as well, because historically you would only be able to get that magazine to see what the trends are. Now you've got all the world's trends and because of targeted marketing, you end up getting all the content that you want to get. And it's like you, you the, the, the example of the Democrats and the Republicans in America. All If, you, if you're a Democrat, all your feed is Democrat feed. So it further builds your, your political stance. And if you're a Republican, all you get is Republican data, how good Trump is compared to how bad Trump is. So that's part of the problem with targeted marketing. You don't get a balanced view. Yeah. So well, that, you that's... like the big... So I was going to say, that's the yeah. particular problem with Instagram. If you're, yeah. I forget, a young girl, but let's say if you're a young girl and, and you happen to look at a, a couple of models in bikinis, suddenly your feet yeah. is full of that and you never see normal people anymore. It's just Correct. perfect people in bikinis. And, Echo chambers. 
Yeah. And so yeah, you immediately go, well, oh, my body doesn't like that. And, <laughs> and yeah. suddenly maybe you, you develop a bit of a, a mental issue about that because you think, well, I don't fit or I don't fit in. I don't know. Um, it's interesting. It's like all the fitness, all the male fitness models as well. And all the, it's, yeah, I think the uh, teenage boys have it as well with, you know, the guys that have perfect physiques. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it it is a like a problem that I mean we I don't think we can solve we us three can't solve, but our job with our kids is to make them aware that there are enhancements. They're only seeing the the best sides of them, um, and it's not realistic. And I think that's what we have to teach our kids. That's the whole premise of the book. Is you know these people aren't necessarily normal. Uh, they're the outliers that you said. The you know the one percent outliers in the community um, that are professionals in that field. You know that's why they look that good in bikinis or in, and look good in uh, in gym clothing because they're at the point one per- top percentile in that field, and that's not normal. Here's a question: Do you know any colleagues who don't have children and potentially have a different outlook to to you? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I don't know. That's a very because I really, I mean, because you know, I'm a dad, I, I totally get the question coming from. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure most people listening, even if I haven't got children, probably understand what we're saying. But I, I do wonder if there's an extra empathic sort of protection here. I don't know. There, there has to be. There, there, you, yeah, I reckon there, there would be. Yeah, good question. Yeah, but you you bring your own biases into into a consultation room all the time. So right. yeah, you, that, and that's part of it. I mean, do, I'm assuming you do. Do do you sort of consult and operate by the principle of you know what would I do for my mom or now maybe my daughter? Like, do do you actually oh, think that way? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And you know, if a patient comes in and wants an operation that I do occasionally, then I say to them, look, I I, I could do this. A great example is ptosis, upper eyelid ptosis repair. I could do the operation, and I'm, it's very straightforward. But if it was one of my, you know, friends or loved ones, who would I send it to? And I send it to Dr. Somia. You know, I send it to Nivin. I go, look, Nivin does way more of these, and he'll get a better result than, than I would. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it's, you know, I'm lucky that I could do that because you're at that stage of your career that you can give work away to people that will do it better than you. Yeah. Um, but my ego is, you know, my ego 10 years ago probably wouldn't let me do that. But the ego now goes, no, you know what, actually they'll do a better, better job than me. Yeah. Um, but that happens all the time. Yeah. I, I, a mutual friend of mine and David's, um, I've referred to another surgeon, um, because I think they yeah. will do a better job than, than I would. Yeah. You also, you also build up your practice too. I mean, I guess it becomes a bit easier to put, to turn away work when you've, when you've built up a, a, a successful practice and well, good patient numbers coming through fairly consistently. So I guess that's kind of the, these young surgeons tend to be the ones that run into trouble, right? A, because they're inexperienced and they don't know what to say no to. And I think you and I've had discussions a year around. The problem is that it's, it's not so much their surgical ability. It's knowing what patients are suitable for what procedures and what things can go wrong and, and having that, that experience under the belt. And then also the commercial pressures, you know, it's, it's yeah. a competitive space, right? And you've got commercial pressures to provide, to have a successful business so you can provide for your family. It's not so, not so straightforward. Yeah. No. 
Um, I don't know how, I don't know if this is linked or not. David and I have sort of joked before about using the word patient versus client, oh, yeah. you know, in interactions in say a clinic. And I could never quite sort of put my finger on exactly what the distinction was. I mean, I, I know what it is because I'm a doctor, but I wonder as a doctor versus maybe a layperson listening to this, whether it's our medical training and all the uh, Hippocratic oath and, and it, those extra steps that we take. This isn't just about, you know, sticking an implant in. It's it, it, it's taking more into account than just the surgery. It's treating people as humans, treating them as patients. And sometimes, you know, you've already touched it, knowing when to say no and teasing out their mental state and all the rest of it. But, you know, there, you know, for example, a, a body tattoo artist, if someone came in and said, cover my whole body, they'd probably yeah. have no problem saying yes, because they make some money and that's what the person asked yeah. for. So I feel like as a medical professional, that there's a, a slight elevation of, of our principle. I, I, do, do you understand what I'm saying? I don't know how to put that into words, but I feel like as medical professionals, we have an extra boundary, boundary to aspire to rather than just delivering what someone wants yeah i think we we just refer we ha i had a one of our clinics we had a laser practitioner in the, you know there's laser and she always referred to pa patients as clients and we always referred to patients as patients that's how we've been trained but it reminds me of a funny story one of my colleagues when he went for an interview to get onto the plastic surgery scheme they asked him that same question about 15 years ago they said oh what are your thoughts as patients being referred to as clients? And he said to the interviewers, doctors have patients, prostitutes have clients. And that was his answer. But I think, I mean, we'll always refer to them as patients because that's, that's how we perceive them. They're not, they're not I, I can never call them a patient. But, but can you explain the difference? Because for the non-medics listening... They find it a really silly, arbitrary sort of distinction, but I think it's super important. This, this is sort of the crux on why you're treating people like your mum or your daughter, because you understand that distinction. They're not just giving you money. There, there's a but it could also be, it could be the genesis of the patient. So, for example, someone's coming in for a laser hair treatment or an injectable, they're not sick, so they're not really a patient. So maybe that's where that comes from. They're like, well... Patients for us in, in the medical field have always got something wrong with them, you know. And in the cosmetic aspect of plastic surgery that we do, there's, there's by definition, they're not unwell. Um, so maybe that's why, you know, in the cosmetic world, they do call uh, patients clients because they're not, they're not unwell. Maybe. I'm not sure. But for us, for surgery, they're just always referred to as patients yeah. because they are the patient, they, they, you've got that doctor-patient relationship, as you, as you said to you before. What do you think? <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. <laughs> We've had the discussion so many times. Yeah. I think whatever whatever feels right for you, if you feel better calling them patients versus client, I mean, I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, you've got someone's life in your hands, but, but then I think, well, you know, aesthetic medicine, you know, is it is it life-threatening? So I guess I kind of see aesthetic medicine is almost a hybrid. It's a bit more commercial than sort of if you're in the hospital. Where... And it is a transactional relationship. Yeah. That, that, and I, you could, I could just, I could see why people are referred to as clients in this world. They're not sick and it is a transactional arrangement rather than you go to a hospital and you're, you're having a procedure because you have a problem. 
So I, I get why people call them clients as well. Don't get me wrong. I, I've never really understood why you'd have to be sick to become a patient. I mean, you know, you can go for a skin check. You're not sick, but you're still going to go through the motions and be a doctor. And but it's health. Properly. But it's health. It's health related. Yeah, health related. But you know, if I shove a needle in someone's face, there's a risk of blindness. It, there's, it's a medical procedure still, even though they're not sick and they're giving me money. It, I'm still going to use my doctorly prowess and skill and, and bedside mm. manner, all the rest of it. You know but that's I mean? probably why, because you're, you're a doctor and you, whenever you treat someone, you've been taught to call them patients. But if you're a, if you're a, a, la- a tattoo artist or a laser, a laser technician, yeah. you, you wouldn't want to call them patients because you, you, you've never trained as a, a physician or a, or a healthcare worker. Yeah. But I think nurses that inject probably refer to their patients as patients, I imagine. Yeah. Rather than clients. Yeah, a lot don't. And yeah, I don't know. It, it bugs me and I can't quite put my finger on But I feel like it gets to the crux of the, the normal thing because, you know, we, we're trying to treat people like our own parents or children where we make yeah. these decisions. And yet, if you're just a client and getting some money for it, it's just a transaction. It's different. Mm. I don't know. I, I can't put it into... Well, I think injectables are like haircuts these days, you know, so that's probably why it, it is very transactional because of the popularity of it, maybe. So they're popular and they're available, but a good medical professional would still make the same decisions that you do, so you have to say no. Often, sometimes yeah. I do, anyway. Well, that's a good question. I mean, how do you say no to patients? We've got you know, people listening, mainly injectors. And, and this is a topic that comes up often is as, as responsible injectors and as pe- as our education is getting better and we started to realize that perhaps we've gone too far with some of the aesthetics that we've created as an industry. So do you have any tips on how you sort of say no to a patient in a way that sort of maintains some kind of relationship or doesn't send them off in a, in a different direction or, you know, makes them feel even worse about themselves? How, how do you well, I, I say what I've said to you before. I, I, firstly, if, I, if they come in and I'm not going to offer them operating, they, I, I don't charge them for a consultation. So automatically that diffuses any anger. Oh, the greedy surgeon took my money and he didn't even want to offer me surgery. So that, that takes care of one conflict. But the other is just brutal honesty. The brutal honesty is I'm a surgeon. I only make money if I operate on you. So I'm incentivized to operate on you but I'm telling you not to have an operation. So that should speak volumes of why you shouldn't have an operation because it'd be easier for me just to say, yes, let's have an operation. I'll make more money out of you. And when I say that to patients, they all just go, yeah, okay, yeah, no, thank you for being, thanks, thanks for being honest. Um, now they might go elsewhere, but at least I don't have the conflict of money because I haven't charged them for the consultation um, and I've just been brutally honest. I mean, it's, it's easy. You know, don't operate. I'm telling you not to operate. Not in your best interest. I've seen Ziggy consult. He's a straight shooter. Oh, yeah? He doesn't mess around. Well, <laughs> when you went into that penis reduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah reduction. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no, I know Ziggy doesn't do any of that. I, I know in your yeah. uh, fellowship you saw it, but you decided yeah, to yeah. do it for me. <laughs> no, no, that's not something I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um one of your chapters is about um, treating transgender patients. Is that correct, David? Well, you know, you t- you talk about all you yeah. talk about the phenomenon, I guess, in terms of who are these types of people. Like, what are the different forms of 
um, gender, like difference between like gender and sex and, you know, yeah. non-binary and intersex. And you sort of give definitions and sort of give, I don't know if you really give so much an opinion, but you more sort of explain. Oh yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah it's very, it's very black and white. Um, yeah. I'm not making any judgments. I'm not making any decisions. And I get a lot of, uh, transgender patients last Thursday or Friday. I had one in my, my five patients. One was transgender who was uh, transitioning from male to female and went through the breast augmentation component of it, which I will say my transgender breast augmentation patients are my happiest patients out of any other cohort of patients, not even close. Like they're very happy and appreciative and um, because they've got good anatomy to start with as well from the chest point of view, they usually have had their hormone replacement. They've got an A, B cup already through the hormone replacements. It's they're the easiest breast augmentations we will do. Um, and then the other patient I had was a, a non-binary who said that um, they had E cup breasts or double D and just wanted lifted and smaller to fit more into what they perceived to be normal. You know, they didn't want to go to an A and B total mastectomy A cup. Um, and she said, "Look, I." As part of my non-binary, I, I still want to have breasts, um, but I don't want to have big E-cup breasts. I want to have like a B, you know, B, B C-cup breast. Um, and if you're a judgmental surgeon or a doctor and you're trying to ask them why they want to do this, quite rightly, they'll go elsewhere. You know, that that's the request that, you know, that, that was made um, and it was all very sensible, nothing extravagant. You know, it's not... Uh, you know, I've had a male Asian patient want to have a white or Caucasian female nose. That's never going to happen. But uh, a patient that's transitioning who has got her, the transitioning specialist with them, they've gone through the, the hormone replacements. So I, I always get the patient at the end of the journey. It's not like at the start where no decisions have been made. A plastic surgeon uh, gets it towards the end. So everything is pretty straightforward. Um and as I said, easily my happiest patients, not even close. And I know everyone will be different, but like roughly how long have they been transitioning, met with, you know, psychologists, been on hormones? Like roughly how long does that take before oh. these patients end up in your doorstep? I, I said for, for me, they've got to be on hormones for at least a year. Okay. Okay. And then yet again, that's not an emotional decision that is more of a physiological decision because it's the same decision I, I have with patients who have breastfed or just had pregnancy. You know, if you've just had a pregnancy, you're not getting a tummy tuck in the first six months. You have to wait a year for your body to recover. If you're you're still breastfeeding, you're not getting any breast operation. So for, for me, is I don't want someone that's just started their hormone replacement therapy and they, their breasts are going to change and then you're hitting a moving target. Yep. So as I said, most of the time, emotionally and psychologically the They've been ready for years, but they also have to be physiologically ready as well. Yeah. Um, in the book, at the at the end of each chapter, you've got like a page dedicated to advice for parents, which I found was, was yeah. quite interesting. Sort of, where did you come up with 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 that kind of information, and and sort of what was the concept behind it? Because I, I actually, yeah, I thought it was great. Well, I figured the book is for tweens and parents of tweens. So, at the end of every chapter, just to summarise places you can go for help for. On that particular chapter, so uh, that's where they they came from. Yeah. So it's just a, a way to stop. I mean, you can go to Google and find it, but I think you know I've taken the 
time and effort to find. It's all very Australia-centric um, websites for people to go, okay, yeah, no, that, that resonates with me. That's probably the site I need to go to. Yeah. Well, what do you say to, I'm sure you, you know, you go to a dinner party and, and, and you get speaking to a couple who aren't surgeons and some of them get a bit judgy and I've, I've been in that situation where I tell them what I do. If you, mm. How do you counter the criticism where they say, well, you're, you're, you're making people more insecure by offering all these operations and doing the bigger boobs, et cetera. What, what do you say to those people? I think a lot, I think a lot of plastic surgery, I mean, a lot of what we do, yes, it's cosmetic, but a lot of it is going back to the, the best example is post-pregnancy mums. They don't want something ridiculous or unnatural. They're commonly is I, I've had my two or three kids. I just want my breasts to what they were before. And that's usually an implant or lift and an implant or just a lift. I've had my kids, my, I go to the gym, I'm really fit, but the loose skin in my lower abdomen, I can't do anything. Or a patient that's 130 kilos, has lost 60 kilos after bariatric surgery or diet and exercise. Like I, I feel healthy, but when I look in the mirror, all I see is loose skin. And, and, uh, and they need that operation just to remove that, to finish their journey. So I think most of our patients, yet again, I've self-selected the patients over the years, are people who want to get restore what they already had or get back to something they already had. Not necessarily I want to look ridiculous and, and huge. So my breast augmentation patient, I'd say 70% uh, postpartum women, probably 25 30% would be never had kids ever. So... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, I think I don't, I don't have that problem. Yeah, but as I said, maybe people are talking at the dinner tables and not talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you know, there's other plastic surgeons who have different different sort of patient profiles and demographics, and so I mean, yeah. you know, there are definitely you know practices that are predominantly filled with with patients in you know their twenties and thirties who have nothing anatomically yeah. wrong with them that are completely acceptable aesthetically who want to look better or they think they yeah. should. So I guess that's that's kind of the patient that Jake was kind of referring to. I think we can all reasonably accept that women that have gone through pregnancy or if you've got a congenital deformity or yeah. something's happened where, you know, you want to look anatomically normal so you don't stand out like a sore thumb and attract attention and get teased for things. But for those patients that are completely acceptable before surgery, I think I think that's what was that kind of where you were Yeah, more of an augmentation than a restoration. Yeah. Yeah, but the augmentation patients, you know, some, some of the cohort are like, I'm curvy around my hips and bum region, but I've got A-cup breasts. I just feel disproportionate for the body that I have. So they have breast augmentation. So patients that have, you know, what we call a blank canvas, which is just empty chest wall, they say, well, I can't wear clothing. I can't wear swimwear. I don't want something ridiculous. I just want, you know, B-cups just to give me some curves to match my body. So I don't, I don't think, society is as judgmental as they probably were years ago. Yeah. And the trend globally actually is that implants, I'm going to Portugal on Thursday for a big world uh, breast augmentation conference. And it's interesting where every time we go, it's a yearly thing, the trends are smaller and smaller implants actually, particularly in uh, South America, well, Southeast Asia and some of the Scandinavian countries, smaller implants in European countries. Australia is still a little bit on the bigger side on average. Same, same, same as America, England is trending towards smaller implants. Yeah. Well, it's good you're saying abreast of things, Ziggy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like that. 
Um, so, you're right. <laughs> oh, I love it. That yeah, it's pretty. Oh, well, let him have it. it. No, I got it. Go. It's Sunday. Give let me it. Sunday. So, um, in terms of what's going on now in our industry, and you were on a few months ago when we were talking about all these changes that, that are sort of rolled through or rolling through. It's been a few months now. Episode two hundred eight. Episode two hundred eight. So now the dust has settled. Um, or maybe it hasn't. Like, where do you think things are at? I know you kind of said that you you sort of understand some of those changes now. So particularly in relation to you know the resharing of, of images and things like that. Overall, what are your thoughts? Are you still kind of as upset as as what you were, or are the changes not as impactful? Oh, as you- I mean, the the changes. Uh, I still think they're the the purpose of the changes were to protect patients and they don't protect patients that that's the fundamental problem with them right um and in an unregulated industry where patients with uh, when surgeons without full surgical qualifications can offer surgery that's the low hanging fruit that the medical board should have governed is you want to do invasive surgery you need to have proper training in in, in that and that they didn't they didn't target that um, they've targeted cooling off periods and advertising, and it doesn't it doesn't help with patient safety and results. To be honest, and that's my problem. It was an opportunity to make change, and they they went down the wrong avenue and wrong path. Um, and that's the disappointing part because it it discriminates against patients from uh, the regional communities because now they'll have to come to Sydney twice to have the consultation where before you could do telehealth now you can't you have to they have to come to us and a lot of patients to be honest are now going to turkey because what the the turkish uh, all the medical tourism companies that send patients to t- turkey actually a lot of them, there's no medical tourism companies patients are going to these clinics because the the are getting advertised on social media and instagram they're flying over themselves not there's no company that take is taking them and so whilst we are governed by a certain guidelines with uh, cosmetic advertising, these companies aren't. So it's not, yet again, it's not a fair system where you're trying to protect the community, but you're only limiting and gagging the Australian surgeons. But now patients are, can go overseas freely and easily and get marketed very aggressively yeah. to, that, to that way. So. It hasn't helped. In fact, I think it's going to make it worse because if you're a patient that goes, okay, I'm, I'm living in Dubbo, I've got to fly twice to Sydney to see my surgeon and then the time for consult, or I can just get on a plane and go overseas and see my doctor when I get there, um, I might take that path because it's going to be cheaper for me than having to do all these trips. So I guess watch this space. We'll see what happens. I think that there, there will be some relaxation on some of the laws, um, I'm hoping. But at the moment, it is what it is, and you have to work within the guidelines. Um, just to reiterate for the people who maybe missed that episode, so what, July 1st, we had a, a whole raft of new cosmetic as well as, sorry, surgical as well as non-surgical sort of changes to, to, to the guidelines and how we treat people and how we consult and how we advertise. And that was a good one to listen to if you want to listen to more about that. But one of the big changes was um, how we screen for body dysmorphia patients. Mm. Now you've been doing it for what three months now. Like, yeah. how, how's that been working in practice? And, and and just remind people what you have to do now. Arthur, every every patient now needs a GP referral, and then they every patient has to do a body dysmorphic questionnaire. The the issue is with the questionnaire 
the you know to get diagnosed with body dysmorphic, you need to go see a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist. Yeah, uh, the, the the screening test is it doesn't it's not sensitive and it's not specific, uh, uh, and so you sometimes a patient scores high on the body dysmorphic, um, and then you examine them that you find that they're totally fine. So yeah. you're then kind of obliged to spend a lot of money of the patients and a lot of time and money for the patient for them to go get screened for body dysmorphic just because the you go get properly diagnosing body dysmorphic whereas previously because their screening was a bit high. So I think it puts the burden on surgeons and we, we have no expertise in proper diagnosing body dys, dysmorphic um, and a lot of the patients that do have body dysmorphic could know how to lie and get around the question get around the questionnaires anyway. So whilst it the intention was was good. The application in real real life is not so good because I don't think it has protected the patients. Um, and in fact, it's added an extra burden to the patient and their doctor relationship. So, so I think that's going to be looked into as well. So if someone triggers a, a positive uh, result on your BDD screen, do you even see them in person or do you say, sorry? Um, no, they come. They, they, they do their questionnaire when, when they come in. Um, so, but then I still examine them, and then if 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 I feel like they uh, have body dysmorphic, then you refer them appropriately. Of course, but are, are you allowed to sort of you know do your own consult, obviously? And if you think, okay, I know by definition you've triggered the the screening tool, and yeah. I should refer you, but on reflection, having spoken to you, it's sort of a quirk of the system where you you've said yes to that, but really it's not what you meant, or. You know, are you allowed? Yeah, you talk to them. Yeah, you talk to them. Of course, yeah. There's, and it's all real life as well. You know, if, if you have answered high on on something and you you talk to them about it, and then you make their captain's call and go, no, actually, I don't think this is you know a, a psychological um, issue. Yeah, but I think we, what what people forget is we don't want patients. Surgeons don't want to operate on um, patients with active psychological problems as well. It's not in our best interest. Not in the patient's best interest. Of course. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I think the, the, you know, the problems with all the uh, guidelines are we've all had to disable comments on our social media, which is fine, means less work, but it's lost that ability for you to communicate with patients and educate patients, uh, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah. Yeah. It is, it is. I mean, I can't remember the specific questions. I'm sure we're using a similar questionnaire, but, you know, if someone's coming to you with, you know, loose hanging skin, um, you know, painful sex, whatever, because of loose skin. And the question is, uh, does this bother you? And do you think about it a lot? Well, yes, because that's <laughs> yeah, why I'm course. here. I know. That's why it's so, yeah, I know, exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's why people score high. Is this really getting you down? Yes. That's why <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I've lost 60, yeah, I've lost 60 kilo. I've, I get rashes and thrush in my skin folds. Yes, it does bother me. And then yeah. they get triggered. But so that's why you have to, you know, make the captain's call and, yeah. Say okay, actually, you know what? You've answered this that you do not have body dysmorphic. Yeah, which is very rare in fairness. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating chat, and really appreciate you taking the time. And congratulations on the book because um, it's a good read. I wasn't too sure how I'd feel about it. it was actually, it's actually, it's actually good. It's actually good. Yeah, yeah. Go wake up. Um, and- yeah, yeah. It's a photo of me and the girls on the on my second daughter's first day of school. We got penciled, so it's beautiful. It's the camera, like it. guys. Maybe seeing this one day on YouTube. So the book comes out on October 10th. Is that right, Maria? 
Correct. Yeah. And not available in ebook yet, but I've been told that it's potentially in in the pipeline that you there will be an ebook coming at some point. Yes, correct. Okay, cool. And as I said, if you want an audiobook version done, I'm here. Well, we've already the audiobook. I mean, you, have yeah, your people called my people? <laughs> I'm the person, man. <laughs> and where can people buy the book? Where can they where can they order it online? Um, yeah, the book will. The website is normalbook.com.au, uh, yep. where you find it. And then in time, it will be on Amazon and other book uh, distributors. But yeah, the easiest way is normalbook.com.au. Excellent. Um, and for anyone that wants to get a copy of the book, if they use the code IA10, they'll get 10% off the cost of the book. So thank you very much, Iggy, for offering that to our listeners. We appreciate it. Amazing. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, it got a bit philosophical at yeah. one stage, but it was good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And a lot of uh, resonance in what we're doing in our day-to-day work. But yeah, congratulations as well from my side and hopefully sell lots of books. So guys, uh, if that stimulates your appetites, go to normalbook.com.au. Grab yourself a copy. Thank you so much, boys. All right, buddy. Well, I'll, get, I'll wear my grey gray hoodie next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, we'll speak soon. Take care. See you, bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.